Hi there. Before we get into this week's episode, I wanted to tell you about an issue of Design Museum Magazine we're working on and how you can help. The title of the issue is The Policing Issue, How One of the Most Powerful Institutions Functions by Design, out later this spring. Help support our special issue on Kickstarter. With your support, it will feature 16 artists, designers, researchers, and writers of color paid for their contributions to this special edition of the magazine. The policing issue will explore the relationships between design and policing, from the physical objects currently in use by officers to the ways in which the design process perpetuates unjust practices rooted in policing, all the way to the design of the protest movement. Our campaign on Kickstarter is to raise $20,000 in support of this publication. We've learned that it is so key to go viral on Kickstarter, and we've learned the best way to do that is to raise about 30% of our total on day one. So, even though our campaign launches March 1st, you can pledge now to help us raise $6,000 before the campaign really even begins. Check out designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on support our Kickstarter campaign to learn more and make your pledge. Welcome to Design is Everywhere, the weekly podcast from the Design Museum. I'm your host, Sam Aquilano. I'm the founder and executive director of Design Museum Everywhere. Each week on our show, we tackle a different element of design and explore how it impacts our everyday lives. We always have the help of a new guest co-host who's an expert in their field, and we interview a guest about their work in design because design is everywhere, and so are we. This week, we're talking about how to determine what makes design good. On this show, we're always exploring the impact design can have on us, others, and the world around us. But what takes it to the next level? What makes good design good? What makes good design great? Joining us today as guest co-host is my good friend and supporter of Design Museum, Karen Corellis Reuter. Karen is a 2021 Harvard Advanced Leadership Initiative Fellow and former creative executive at places like Nike and Reebok. And our special guest is Ralph Weigman, the CEO of IF International Forum Design, which has an amazing design awards program. But before we dive in, I'm so excited. We recently announced a really new, interesting product from the Design Museum. Basically, we've taken an entire exhibition and turned it into a deck of cards. Right now, you can't come and visit our exhibitions, but you can actually bring the We Design exhibition home by ordering the We Design exhibition conversation cards. The deck includes stories from creatives in a variety of design industries, along with statistics and topics of discussion around diversity, equity, and design. There's lots of ways to use the deck. It can be used individually or in small groups. Lots of prompts for questions and introspection. I'm really proud of this. Such a cool thing to be able to have the exhibition like laid out on your table. So check it out on our website. If you go to designmuseumeverywhere.org and in the menu, click on publications, you'll find the We Design exhibition conversation cards and you can order them there. And with that, onto this week's topic. When I think about design, I think about how it has the potential to make such positive interactions with, between people, with the world, and make things easier and better. In 2010 and 2012, I received the IF Design Award for some of my product design work at Bose, which was awesome to be recognized. But I often find myself wondering, what makes good design? What makes it good? What are the qualifications? Who determines what good design is? Is it that classic beautiful and functional? I always think back to one of my professors at RIT who said design is about making things better, pure and simple. And I was like, okay, I, I can make things better. <laughs> I'm excited to chat with our guest co-host this week to find out about design and good design. I'm joined by Karen Corellis Reuter. Karen is a 2021 Harvard Advanced Leadership Initiative Fellow, 
a current member of the IF Design Awards jury for product design and a former creative executive at Nike and Reebok. She received her bachelor's in industrial design from Purdue and a master's in business management from Leslie University. Since then, Karen has been a leader in global design strategy, and I'll add, she has been an important partner and supporter of us here at the Design Museum. She guides design excellence, creative rigor, and craft. Karen, welcome to the show. Thanks, Sam. It's great to be here. You have had such an incredible career, and we're going to get into some of like the, the shifts and the reinventions that you've had. But you've, you know, you've been in the executive leadership of design. You've been a brand psychologist. How do you define design, and how do you characterize good design from bad? Well, Sam, I have to reflect a little bit about what you said and your professor said, is that it really is about new and better for me and not new and different. And I think specifically industrial design, but all design is about solving problems for consumers. And that has always guided me how to make things new and better for the consumer, not just new and different. Yeah, totally. I, I'm often trying to make this parallel at the Design Museum that design is a problem-solving enterprise. And it, I haven't, I don't know if I've successfully shown people that like a final design is a solution to a problem. Like it is the embodiment of that. So when you're working sort of in, in these design fields, like is that the feeling that you get when you're like holding that, that final thing? Like I've created a solution. Yeah, I think I do have that feeling. I also have had and will always have a commitment to objectivity and design. I think that one of my shifts was after being a designer for about 10 years, I went back and got my master's in business management, which you mentioned. And, you know, a few friends and colleagues asked if I was going to make a shift, you know, if I was going to the other side. And, you know, I remember thinking, I'm doing this so I can become a better designer, not so that I can become a business person or a marketer. It was really about understanding the language of business, which is very objective. I also find that objectivity really important when we critique design. And I think, you know, we've all been in those situations where you present a new, a new prototype, a new model, and someone says, I don't like it. So it's those moments that really drove me in my career to continue not just to, to speak to that myself, but to develop and build on strategies that help our designers speak in that language. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I do think a lot of people, I, I went, I got my MBA as well. And I talked to a lot of business people who are like, design is a subjective enterprise. And I'd be like, oh, but there are some elements that are not subjective. They are, they are, it's based on a process, based on humans, based on human factors. So maybe we can get into some of those criteria that's sort of like someone might find subjective, but you and I know that if you can hit these criteria that you can at least aim towards a good design. Can we talk about some of those? Yeah, absolutely. One is this idea around how do you understand what you stand for as a brand? So if you imagine a Venn diagram, right? There's two circles. One says, what does my brand stand for? The other says, what does my consumer care about? And as a designer, I just feel like if you, if you just start with those two questions, if you're designing for a brand or what does my client stand for? What does my consumer care about? 
that's the beginning of that objective list, right? Mm -hmm. And that's that power at Nike. We used to always say plan with the end in mind. And I think that that's that opportunity is to just look at those two questions and start to answer that. Mm -hmm. The other is Clay Christensen from the Harvard Business School, who passed away sadly this past year, had a philosophy called jobs to be done. I'm a huge fan of jobs to be done. And although it's never been brought into the realm of design, I did. (laughs) And so the idea of jobs to be done is what job is your consumer hiring this product for? Consumers hire and fire design or product just like anything else. Mm -hmm. That for me was sort of a, I don't know, I don't want to call it a call to action, but it really has helped even in the most subjective conversations that we have in design, for example, around color. Right. You know, so what is the job consumers are hiring your product to do? When you can get good at that, it brings objectivity into the equation. Yeah, I like that a lot. I love talking to folks who have been in that executive level of design. Your role, probably, I'm assuming in so many cases, was to like elevate design within these organizations. So that's taking it almost to a new level meta of like, not only have to design great shoes, great products, but you got to convince the business that that is of value. Can you talk about how you did that and maybe how you were successful and maybe how you weren't? Sure. So I've spent a lot of time, as you know, if you if you look at, at, at my background, I've designed for brands. And so in, as the world becomes more and more competitive, it's more and more important for brands to define who they are. And I think that design helps in that conversation, right? Not just what do you stand for as a brand, but what's your differentiation? What makes you unique? What is your voice? And then design can start to bring that to life within the product. So I believe that as an industrial designer, product designer, I think if you don't have great product, where do you start? So I think having design's voice elevated at the table is super important. Also because we bring a diverse voice. So You know, design for me has always been a balance between rigor and instinct, right? So the data that a business has, why they want to do a certain product, why they want to enter a certain market, and then the gut, right? Like, what is the instinct telling you? And I think designers, we walk that balance, right? You can say we walk the balance between right brain and left brain, but I do think that we have that ability to metabolize data and and information and then act on what we've been observing and seeing. And so I think that skill is very useful across the board within brands and companies. Do designers, I agree completely that designers are so good at absorbing data, observing and like synthesizing it relatively quickly. And I wonder if like one of our downfalls, especially I'm thinking some of my experiences in the corporate world of like, do we need to like slow down and make that internal instinct more visible? I found when I had the most success as a designer at Bose, when I was a corporate designer was like, when I made my process and decision making as transparent as possible. You know, when I was like 
kind of acting like <laughs> classic designer magician and just be like showing up with my solution, people would be like, you know, I don't like it. But when I showed up with all my models, all my process and talked about why I did this and why I did that, that's when I was successful. Have you found that? How, how has that kind of process entered your world? Yeah, that's the objectivity. Yeah. So you asked maybe in, in, for an example of, you know, when it, when it may not have worked. And I think that is that was the same area that I was landing on is that as a designer, as a creative leader, you have a vision for where, where you want to take the brand, where the brand should go. And, you know, if you picture yourself, you know, standing at the bottom of the mountain and the, the <laughs> North Star is at the top of the peak and it, it feels so clear, right? There's nothing that's obstructing your, your view as a creative to that vision. And I once yeah. had a colleague at Nike tell me, you know, you can see that vision so clear, but there are a few of us that see the peaks in between that, right? And we can't see over the next ridge. And so I think as a designer, we have to make sure not just to explain how we got from point A to point B, but to give our teams and our colleagues on on both sides of the aisle, right? On business and design, the tools they need to get to the first ridge and maybe the second ridge. So I think patience might help in that, but also yeah. just that understanding that they not only need to believe in your vision, they need the tools to get there with you and you need them to get there with you as well. You've done so much around design. What about design have you learned recently? That's a great question. Boy, I think what I've learned about design recently is that everyone is a designer in some ways, right? Everyone, and, and this, this will get into our conversation on IF too, right? All mm -hmm. of us, you know, open up the closet in the morning and decide what we're going to wear, what shoes we're going to put on. And, you know, we all have opinions and feelings. So I believe that there is a there's a designer in everyone. And to continue to have those conversations with people, especially during this time where conversations have been with a variety of people, I think there's a bit of a designer, a problem solver in everyone. So design doesn't just belong in the design department. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. That's amazing. And then, yeah, I wanted to learn more about the Harvard Fellowship, what that's all about. And I'd love to hear how you're bringing design into that new sort of arena of your career. Yeah, so I'm really excited about the Advanced Leadership Initiative Fellowship. So it is designed for third chapter people, right? So, um, <laughs> third chapter in your life. Yeah, third chapter in, in, in your life, right? So the second chapter is really about, you know, building your career and establishing yourself in, a, in an area of expertise. And the third chapter is how do I tap into that energy and desire to recreate and reinvent, to help solve some big challenges in the world, and especially those of social impact. So, so you know, society's most pressing challenges, you know, and I think like design, you know, these problems haven't been solved for a reason. They're not easy. And so whether that's in our workplaces or in politics or our institutions, there is a need for problem solvers. So where I see, 
you know, the connection for me as a designer is just this desire to, you know, research and explore and experiment and build. And I hope to bring that uh, to my to my fellowship. Uh, my focus will be on gender equality, which is near and dear to my heart. And I think, you know, what I said to you, designers are dot connectors, right? We we are editors and we're really when we're at our best, we bring diverse thoughts and opinions to the table. And I think that I will use that skill in this next form for the third chapter. That's so, so exciting. I can't wait to see and hear about what you work on. This is so great. Thank you so much for being here. This is so fun. Thanks, Sam. Please stick around and we'll bring Ralph into the conversation after a quick break. If you like this podcast, check out our Kickstarter campaign for our latest magazine special issue. It's called The Policing Issue, How One of the Most Powerful Institutions Functions by Design, out later this spring. At the Design Museum, we're always working on projects that explore the transformative power of design, whether it's our educational programs, the Workplace Innovation Summit, our books. This magazine is no exception. We're tackling how institutions are defined by their design. With your support on Kickstarter, it will feature 16 artists, designers, researchers, and writers of color who will pay for their contributions to this special issue. The policing issue will explore the relationships between design and policing, from the physical objects currently in use by officers to the ways in which the design process perpetuates unjust practices rooted in policing, all the way to the design of the protest movement. Help us raise $20,000 between March 1st and March 30th to make this happen. Check out designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on our Kickstarter campaign. We're back and we're joined by our special guest, Ralph Weigman. Ralph is the CEO of IF International Forum Design, which organizes one of the most celebrated and valued design competitions. As I mentioned, I am the proud receiver of two IF awards, of which I'm very, very proud of. Before Ralph joined IF as managing director in 1995, he had a background in marketing and as an experienced trade show manager. Now as CEO, he and the team at IF give design a face and help identify good design. Ralph's work brings good design to the forefront and is committed to celebrating design excellence. Ralph, it's so nice to have you here. Welcome. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Yeah. I mean, when we're talking about design excellence, IF, can you talk about what IF is, talk about the IF Awards? It was founded in 1953, and it is the oldest so-called independent design organization worldwide. Independent means it was never subsidized by government or any government organization. And it was found by the German industry after World War II. Design was to play an important role for the future German industry, the remaining German industry, uh, luckily. And uh, since then, well, I have grew and I have got more active and I have got more international. Well, and today we are happy to organize one of the probably most prestigious design awards in the world. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure you have so many favorites <laughs> in terms of awards that have gone out and you maybe you can't play favorites, but could you share some examples of recent awardees that um, in particular kind of made an impact on you? Yeah, our audience should, should try to imagine that, that an IF Design Award is at least covering, let's say, beside fashion, all kind of design disciplines and categories. So it's product, it's communication, it's packaging, it's usability, user experience, service design. So it's a whole range of, of design services that's covered. And I myself 
most of the time after 25 years, um, I'm always overwhelmed by the not so popular disciplines, right? So let's say there is a special vehicle, anything like that. It's not, so people would expect cars. Yes, okay, great. But I would love to see a special vehicle or there's something, a solution for Africa regarding clean water transportation from A to B. Those are the hidden champions I'm pretty much in favor of. Not the very typical ones that we see in every store or many stores and that we all have in our households. Yeah, yeah, the very different, the very impactful. I want to get into how exactly the awards are selected. And I know Karen can help us with that. But before we do that, how do you and the team at IF like define what a successful, good design is? <laughs> that's such a, that's the big question of the day. It is a really good question. And to share a secret with everybody else, um, at least if you really want, then everybody, you, everybody can definitely in some way understand what good design means. Maybe not in perfection, of course, because that's why you have to study and why you need to be a professional designer. But um, let's say the rough first approach is For example, idea, form, function, differentiation, impact. Just to make it quite simple, that means idea stands for relevance. Is the idea relevant? No matter if it's a communication design, a service design or a product, is it relevant? Uh, how is the fit for purpose? Right? For a designer, this is an important question. Does it fit for the purpose it has? Sometimes you have a great idea, but it doesn't fit. And then the potential user of it, Uh, will not identify, right? What is it made for? What's the real benefit? Form is, of course, aesthetics. That's what everybody expects it to be. Is it beautiful, right? Is it beautiful? But I would say, Karen, Karen knows much better than me, of course, but I would say maybe the, the beauty aspect, maybe it's 10% for a designer to look at, right? And say, yes, finally, right? It is beautiful on top, great. But this is not 90% to evaluate good design. Um, how is the emotional appeal? Right? This is why the designers are definitely not paid good enough in most companies and by most clients, because at least most of the things we sell today are being sold via emotions. When I was young, and let's say we checked out cars, then everybody, the salespeople would say, would you like to see the engine? Okay, nowadays you don't see any engine anymore, no matter if it's, if it's gas or electric or whatever. The engine is hidden, right? And what makes us buy something or love something? Emotions. So the car designers sell the cars, not the engineers. Yes, they play a super role, but the car designers make it emotional, right? So they should be paid much, much, much better. Function, of course. Functionality is something everybody expects. Does it really do well what it should do? Right? easy to handle, safe, and all these kind of aspects. That's something we can all figure out easily by using something. Differentiation, so for example, innovation. It's always the first question of our, of our judges is always, where's the innovation? Is there something? Is it special? Is it unique? Brand for companies, the brand differentiation, very important, right? To say, does it support the brand identity? Because people stay connected to brands usually. And then impact is something today super important. Think about sustainability, right? Something being not sustainable will have more and more difficulties to succeed in markets. 
and more relevant as well as 10 years ago is the social impact. Does it contribute to societies? So if you take these, it sounds quite compact, but um, if you take those kind of criteria, we call it criteria, and you would just try to use it for any kind of product, you will figure out that you get an idea. Maybe you don't feel safe, but you say, okay, function, yes, it's good. Aesthetics, I think it's beautiful. Right? So you can even by yourself measure in some way and say, okay, all in all, more, more good than bad, so positive. Right? And this is, of course, more complicated what our jurors do, of course, on a super high level. How do you take that framework and apply it in practice to actually judge the awards every year? Luckily, we have a, have a almost 70 years experience now, so really luckily. Um, so we should know what we are doing, but um, yes, it is complex. It's true. I mean, for the actual award, we received 9,800 entries, professional entries. Um, honestly, I didn't expect that number at all in a COVID-19 year. Right? I really thought so many designers suffer a lot. Right? So the individual designers, so many designers lost their clients. Um, they really don't know how to survive. So I expected a decrease of applications. But opposite, we got a real increase of almost 25%. This is not to be explained. I really couldn't explain how that happened. But as a matter of fact, we had 9,800. So and since this year, we have a so-called pre-selection. Karen hasn't experienced that because it's the first year. Um, that means we, we have invited 91 <laughs> jurors from all over the world who did the so-called online pre-selection. That means they used a brand new scorecard. We invented a scorecard to use online. So they give the results with those scorecards, right? They say, okay, idea 80%, form 75% or similar to that, right? And finally, the best 50% of all entries will join the final jury. So we have this kind of pre-selection for the future as well. That's as, a, as an online process. And the second step is, or used to be, I have to say, <laughs> used to be the physical jury. We luckily had Karen as well, as, as well, but this year it has to be digitally as well because Corona doesn't allow our jurors to travel. So both pre-selection and final selection will be online. But we just by honestly, by chance, we have started to um, invent a new software for that one year ago. Really not before Corona, right? We had no idea about um, the importance of it so soon. But luckily, we started working on it. And so we could use this tool for the very first time. Yes, there is still room to improve, but that will never stop. Um, but it worked quite well. So we were able to um, provide a well-functioning tool to our jurors to make it as easy as possible to discuss and decide. So, but that's a big thing, of course, right? Usually you have 5,000 square meters. No, no, if your audience can imagine 5,000 square meters, that's big. And then you have 5,000, 6,000, 7,000 objects there, right? So even for well-experienced designers, it's kind of overwhelming. If you, if you move in the building the first time and you look at it and you say, wow. And I think the wow most of the time means 
how can we manage that in two days? Right? This is most probably the real question for the jury when they enter the building the first time. It's just huge, really huge. Oh, Sam, I can't even tell you. It, the, when, when I walked in the first time, even the second time when I walked in, it's like a kid in a candy shop. That's the only thing I can explain. And, you know, I think what people don't may not realize is that it's, you know, tabletop objects and it's small handheld objects and it's automobiles and it's heavy equipment. So there is a there's a physicality to it that is just impressive. You know, I, I want to use the word awesome because it really yeah, yeah. is, you know, Truly you're, awe-inspiring. it's awe-inspiring. You know, I, I want to say that the system for the jury this year, having experienced it myself, is also a commitment from IF to provide the entrance with feedback on their on their product. And so, you know, this digital jury is really providing the people who have submitted entries with feedback, you know, in order to make and move to a new and better place, not just a new and different place. Yeah, that's exciting. I, I love the, the feedback element. That's so cool. So tell me, so I got two days. What happens on day one? People are <laughs> normally getting into this giant space. Um, and, and maybe we can keep our, our time machine pre-corona because I, I think it's a kind of it's a nice visual to imagine this, you know, 500 square meter space filled with amazing design. What, what happens with the jury on that first day? Well, of course, first of all, we try to give them a slight warm up, right, to give them a chance to move around, not just focus on the own group, just get an overall impression and get used to the space and get used to the other jurors. Right. Um, so usually we have the evening before the jury starts, we have this common dinner and we had it always in the space. So we integrated it into the space. So they were already surrounded by all the objects and the designs. And this was the kind of warming up, right? Introduction round. I mean, who's who coming from here and there and there. So this is kind of, I really love it because more and more our jurors say it's like a family meeting. And I really love the idea to have an IF family like that. That's amazing. And um, so then the next morning, of course, then the real hard jury work starts. And that's hard job, a hard job to do. Um, but then always one um, guide from the IF team is trying to make it as easy as possible for the jury, checking the time, right? Giving, giving some recommendations regarding speed, Right? We have to speed up a little bit or everything fine. Sometimes they would just recommend to have a break and say, you seem to be tired right now. Let's have some candies and a cup of coffee and a 10 minutes break. And then maybe we go smooth right on. So this is a real, of course, they do not need our support. They are super designers and they don't, basically, they don't need this criteria. Right? I mean, for them, it's a gut feeling. They look at it and say, yes, or no, never, right? however. Uh, but sometimes if it's really close, then we sometimes remind them and say, okay, there are criteria. And if you are not really sure, it's our job to make sure that we have a fair judging. So please remind the criteria. Is this fulfilled? Yes, no. Is this fulfilled? Yes, no. So right to help them 
to finally make a fair judging, because that's what all the participants expect from us as the organizers, but of course from the jurors as well, right? because they say yes or no, right? That's the decision of the jurors. Do you cap the number of awards or is it more focused on each entry? We definitely try to make our jurors judge on every individual entry. This is not always easy, to be very honest. Let's say if you have 50 mobile phones on the table, right? As a designer, you look at it and say, okay, this, 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 and that, right? So, but again, this is from our rules. This is impossible because we say, sorry, every single application needs to be judged individually. You cannot just say, I take these five and the other 45 are out because that would be too easy. We cannot make it that easy because everybody pays a small entrance fee for every application. And we have to make sure that they get a fair judging individually. You know, I noticed, Ralph, over time, you've really built the diversity in the jury. So from um, gender, geography, ethnicity, can you just talk a little bit about the evolution of the IF jury? Right now, I'm. this is the best part for my Corona compensation, thrust compensation, is that I'm, as a farewell, I'm working on a book, right? So we will have a nice gift for my friends and everybody, right? So nothing to sell. So I'm not promoting a book for sale. Sorry, not what I meant, right? So it's a, it's a gift book, um, sharing my 25 years. And one of the things I mentioned is that in my beginning, the second or third year, we had a jury at that time, it was, of course, 95% product design. We had a jury of 25 designers and there was one female. One. So looking at that, I really felt so embarrassed. But then I thought, okay, at that time, it was really still difficult to find well-known, successful female designers in industrial design. Because at that time, it was primarily industrial design. Right. So by now, today, we really have 50-50 or sometimes even 60-40 more female um, than male. And it's the same at schools. If I go to schools today and I check out the industrial design, then it's 50-50 today. Right. We need much more female impact. What is the impact of not just IF as an award, but just as design awards overall? What do you see the impact of that? For me, I think the, the conversation and bringing the objectivity to design is still really important, right? So it can't just be within a jury process and people within the craft of design um, understanding what great design is. I think the, the specific ask around impact um, and making that more public and more of a public conversation is really important. And, you know, I think as a, I'm not sure, we designers will always consider impact as Ralph mentioned, but the fact that we're getting objective about it, we're having the conversation about it. And, you know, I would imagine after this year's uh, process, next year, I hope we will start to see more, better, more deep, more relevant answers to the impact question. Because if IF deems that this is important and you plan with the end in mind, maybe it helps to turn the ship around, around environment, social, 
and governance. Karen is, of course, very correct with everything she said. And um, in addition, I, I hope that awards like ours and some others as well will as well have a certain impact on the general improvement of products and designs, right? I mean, every year it's get, things are getting better, right? Because we find a smarter material, we find a smarter process, and, 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 and so there's always invention and innovation. And I hope that good design, relevant design awards uh, will in general help to increase quality and improve services Because we compare, because we figure out, we identify, we promote excellence and say, this is an excellent solution, by the way. And this is not about copying, right? This is about accepting there is something really great. And this, if we talk about sustainability and if it's really great, we should follow it. Because there's only one sustainability issue. There are not 10 different ones. I hope everyone on this, that's listening to this podcast, and it's certainly the three of us here, we know that good design matters. And certainly every time time period is unique, but we are living in a very, very unique time. So why does design matter now? Design matters now for the same reasons I think design has always mattered, right? It, it, it's important to understand who we are designing for. And there's a, there's a humanity about it and a connection about it to people. And when design doesn't focus on the person, design isn't as successful as it should be. So I think now more than ever, we're realizing the importance of people. And I think in general, at least for me, and you know, my, my shift to this area of social impact is I wanna look at people more through a microscope now than a telescope more than ever. I don't want to bucket big groups. I really want to understand the nuances of individuals. And to Ralph's point, I think designers were very, very good at that. But now I think it's even more important than ever to not just understand what we share, but what makes us different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and celebrating that. That's great. Thank you. Ralph, what do you, why does design matter now? Right now, I think we realize how important human behavior is, right? Because we all miss it. We miss connections. We miss network. We miss meeting people. And we, we feel quite happy for a very simple human approach right now, right? It can make us already pretty happy these days. And if we see all the people working in retirement places, in hospitals, and, 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 I see a huge need for the improvement of design to help them to be provided much better for the next pandemic we will face, because it will come, right? Sooner or later, it will come. And if we see what they do these days, that's so amazing, so unbelievable amazing. They risk their lives every day. They are not really protected in the way they should be. They don't have the right tools and, and products they need. They don't get the right information in the right time. And this is a super big design challenge. It's easy to say it's medical and, and things like that. That's easy right now because we are surrounded by it. But I would really say providing super precise information on time, providing very well doing products and services but not really forgetting about the human aspects 
And this is why design is so important. I, I totally respect engineers, but I mean, the human discipline is design. Engineering is about technology, but the human discipline is design. And we really need more designers. Designers will not solve every problem, but most problems will not be solved without designers. Fantastic. I love it. I could talk to you both all day. This this cuts to the core of what we're trying to do and, and share with the world at Design Museum. So thank you both. And Ralph, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us today. It was really good fun. I love it. Thank you very much, Carrie. It was so good to see you. Great to see you too. Listeners, to learn more about Ralph's work and IF, you can check out ifworlddesignguide.com. Now it's that time, my favorite time of the week. Every week we share our weekly dose of good design, our examples of good, thoughtful design that has impacted us or others in a meaningful way. I will go first. I gotta laugh because it's gonna be another video game. As Karen shared in the break, we're not really interacting with many new things, uh, but it, you know, it's pretty cold out still. I'm staying home these days, so I'm playing a lot of video games after I put the kids to sleep. So one that I played a lot over the winter break, um, and I just loved it on so many levels. It's called Hades, and I played it on the Nintendo Switch. Hades is a roguelike game, um, and what does that even mean? Basically, roguelikes are, it's like every time you play the game, the levels are different. They're like generated by an algorithm. So each time you play is different, which is a lot of fun. In this case, you're in a dungeon battling monsters, but every time the, the dungeon is different. Plus, when you play a roguelike, when you lose, you really lose. You go back to the beginning. And so there's not like saving in the middle. So no matter how far you're in the game, you're just zip right back to the beginning. So the stakes are higher in quotes. It's still a game. Uh, Hades was developed by Supergiant Games. And in the game, you control Zagreus, who is the son of Hades, god of the dead and you're trying to escape the underworld. So even though this is a typical, like what they'll call a hack and slash game, you're, like, you're running around with a sword battling monsters. The graphics and the visuals just are so beautiful, like painterly beautiful, it's just gorgeous. And you know, I, it was really fun for me because there's just so many references to Greek mythology. Zagreus is often helped by other Olympians like Zeus and Aphrodite and Ares. And the thing that really struck me beyond the visuals and the gameplay was the dialogue, right? In a typical game like this, you'll have a lot of NPCs or non-playable characters that like have the same line of dialogue that they just repeat over and over and over again. But they really took pains in Hades to make the dialogue deep and complex. So you might run into a non-playable character and talk to them. Uh, maybe you gave them a gift. And then like hours later, days later, you run into them again and they remember the gift that you gave them, but they also sort of like admonish you for taking so long <laughs> to reach them in the game again. So a little bit of ribbing from the computer. Uh, it was such a fun game to play. I love the Greek mythology elements and I can totally imagine playing it again and I probably will. It's got high replay value. So check it out if you have a Switch or you can also play on Windows or Mac. Okay, that's mine. Karen, you are up. Yeah, so Sam, mine um, is only about positive reinforcement. So there's no punishment uh, like for, doing <laughs> some, for doing something wrong on mine. I've discovered an app called Simply Piano, and I've been um, trying to teach myself how to play the piano for a while now. And um, this this app by Joy Tunes uh, is is quite amazing. So 
they take you through from the basics of, you know, reading music. Uh, my goal is I want to be able to play the piano with both hands. So what I love about this is that from the get-go, it has you uh, playing songs that you recognize, and they do it through, uh, you're almost a member of the band. So <laughs> in the beginning, you might have two or three notes that you play, but it comes in. So you're listening to music uh, at the same time, you're listening to uh, vocals and, and songs being sung. And as you progress, your part, uh, your piano part becomes more and more. The, it does uh, identify when you've played a note wrong, so it's listening to you. And hmm. if you play, so I guess there is a little negative reinforcement. That's so good. If, you, <laughs> if you get enough of those notes wrong, it's just very um, friendly user interface kind of whips you back over to the start <laughs> and you start and you start again. So anyway, I feel like maybe when my next birthday comes around or a friend's next birthday, I might be able to uh, play a song on the piano. So oh. I'm I'm uh, obsessed with this simply. Oh, piano. that sounds wonderful. I'll definitely have to check that out. So cool. Karen, thank you so much for being here. This is so fun. I want to let everyone know that this this episode was Karen's idea. So I'm so glad you had this idea and it was really fun to do with you. Thank you for inviting me to join. It was great talking to you and to Ralph. That's our show. I want to again thank Karen Corellis Reuter and Ralph Weigman for joining us. And thank you all for listening. It was such a fun conversation. We'll post links to IF and some of the other resources we discussed today on our episode page. Check out designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on podcast. While you're there, be sure to pre-order our new book, Bespoke Bodies, The Design and Craft of Prosthetics. I love this book. We've started to receive the copies. It came out so well. I'm so proud of it. I'm so proud of this community that we worked with. The limb loss and prosthetics community is amazing and just so happy with what we were able to pull together as a team. So that's on our website right on the front page. You can order it and you'll get your book. You can always find the latest from Design Museum on social media. On Twitter, we're at design underscore museum. And on Instagram, we're at design museum everywhere. We're also on LinkedIn and Facebook. And we have an awesome weekly e-newsletter that you can sign up for right on our website. This episode was written and edited and produced by the amazing Amor Yates with production support from Ryan Flom. Our theme music is Orange Sunset by One Wave. For the entire team here at Design Museum Everywhere, thank you so much for being here and we'll talk again next week.